Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. For those of you who have listened to us before, you know that our mission is about breaking down stereotypes about Orthodox Jews, and you're probably also familiar with the fact that we highlight every year 10 Orthodox Jewish All-Stars, which we did a few weeks ago, and you should go to JewInTheCity.com to check it out. One of the reasons that we highlight super successful Orthodox Jews is to show people that you can do out-of-the-box things, you can have great success, and that your observance and a Jewish lifestyle doesn't need to hold people back from their dreams. When I initially conceived of the All-Stars in our first All-Star video, which was starring Joe Lieberman, Faye Kellerman, the Maccabees, I thought that this video was going to be there to show non-Orthodox Jews uh, you know, how different we are, how different we can be from what they imagined us to be. What ended up happening was that so many people who had been Orthodox their whole lives wrote in and told us how much chizuk, how much strength, and how much inspiration it gave to show them that their dreams can be bigger and, you know, less um, in the box than they had grown up to believe. And when I spoke at the All-Stars event last year, because every year we do an awards party to go along with uh, the, the list of All-Stars that we release, it was right after Purim, and I noticed that um, when Mordechai is brought out for the first time with Achashverosh, you know, dressed up, you know, in the, the royal robes, and, you know, he's second in command, the the Jewish people have just been saved from certain death. Um, I mean, really, we said in an instant everything went upside down. They were supposed to be the condemned, and then they were the ones that were saved. And even after that big turn of events happens, it's not until Mordechai comes out second in command to the leader of this, you know, big empire that the Megillah tells us, that the light and the joy that the Jews are feeling come about when they see one of their guys high up in this big position. And what I saw from that, what I took from that is there's just this inexplicable pride that we feel when we see one of our own up, you know, for some sort of honor, up for some sort of great thing. Not just general Jewish pride, because even before I was observant, part of the way that my mother raised my sisters and me to feel great about being Jews was going over with us how many Jews were doctors and lawyers and Nobel laureates. That was just somehow what she instilled in us. Like, we're great because we've achieved great things. But then it's to see people who have done those things while keeping a life of Torah and mitzvot. That's even another level. It's that... Our, you know, our rules and restrictions don't hold us back. They still allow us to, you know, do these things of honor and of note and that ultimately, hopefully, the the laws and rules give our success meaning and, and uh, give it purpose and give it context. And so um, without further ado, um, I'm thrilled to bring on today our guest, Sarah Dukes, who I believe is the first, certainly the first Orthodox Jewish woman, possibly the first Orthodox Jew who has, who's a musician, he's, she's a pianist, and she is on the ballot for a Grammy. Um, and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. So just to explain to our listeners who might not, because I feel like I got this a little bit confused, um, how the process works. So explain to us how the, the Grammy process works. There are Grammy nominees and those get voted on by people who are part of, like they have to be part of a certain industry? The Recording Academy, yes. So there's three rounds of voting. Um, you submit your music, okay. and the first round 
um, determines who's on the ballots. Um, then there's different categories. Mine happens to be under the category of New Age music. Um, the next round of voting can only be judged by members of the Recording Academy. Um, and the, the, um, song, the albums, I guess, with the top five that have the most votes, they're the ones that get nominated for the Grammys. Got so you. I know in my up category there's currently a I'm sorry? You're up to round one. And, and so what, um, yes. when do you find out um, if you've made it to round two? They announce it on December 6th. Got it. Okay, so that's coming up soon. And when did you find out that you were on, that you were, okay, you're up for being on the ballot. That's what's happening right now. When, when and how did you find out that you were um, a possibility for, for showing up on the ballot? Well, when I um, released my CD a couple months ago, I I was thinking if I should submit it to the Grammys or not, and at first I was like, the Grammys, are you serious? Um, you're joking, right? And I wasn't going to do it, but then another side of me said, anything can happen, and if you don't submit it, then it's for sure not going to happen. Um, so I just thought it doesn't hurt to submit it. Um, I found out a few weeks ago that it actually made it on the ballot, and I just I could not believe it. Um, I was very... Um, very surprised to hear that it made it on the ballot. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a good feeling. And and how and was, it the first time it occur- was it the first time it occurred to you because you've been making music for a while now? Had you ever tried to submit any of your albums before? Or this was the first time you gave it a go. No, this is the first time. I figured, why not? Um, then it could. Um, I, you know, was I really expecting it to happen? Not really, but I figured, you know, you have to make a Kaylee. You have to leave the options open, even if there's a slight, slight, slight chance that it could actually happen. Um, so it's the first time that I decided to venture out and, and do something like that. And how many, um, I guess, how many other people, do you have any sense of how many other people sent in their albums for consideration? Um... I, I mean, I'm assuming thousands. There's, um, there's a lot of different categories. In my category in particular, I know that there's 138 that are currently on the ballot um, under the New Age category. Um, so then the top five are the ones that, get, that receive a nomination. Got it. Okay. So, and, but, but regular people can't vote. These are only people that are uh, in this professional music circle. Got it. Okay, so we can flood the, the phone lines right now. It's not a matter of <laughs> That would have been nice. <laughs> uh, and um, so now let's now that we know kind of where you are right now, let's back up a little bit and talk about what got you here. Um, if you could first start with us, um, where did you grow up? When and why did you get into piano playing? So I am from Charlotte, North Carolina. I was born and raised there. Um, my parents started us uh, with piano lessons. I was six years old, um, and we went to lessons weekly. And I think um, what happened to us is, is common in a lot of children is you start off t- 
taking lessons, whether it's music or art or any sort of lessons, and it's really fun and exciting and you practice. Um, and then at a certain point, the excitement wears off and you want to quit and you don't want to do it anymore. Um, so that happened um, when I was about seven or eight. Um, I wanted to stop playing. I wasn't interested anymore. And um, my parents, thank God, did not let me stop. And they said, you don't have to practice, but you have to sit by the piano every day for 20 minutes. Um, and they made me actually sit there. And so instead of practicing, because I did not want to practice anymore, um, I started just fiddling around at the piano, at the keys, uh, exploring the sounds that they can make. And I realized that um, I could actually create my own melodies um, and my own sounds um, from the piano. And I started composing. That's how I started composing. My first song was when I was eight years old. Um, it's a fun little bibbly called Elephant in Tights. Um, and that's how it all started. My parents uh, were extremely supportive and encouraging, and they would yell in every now and then from the kitchen or any time they would walk up the stairs. It sounds great. It sounds wonderful. So that encouragement and support um, uh, made me feel good, gave a positive reinforcement for what I was doing. Um, and then after that, I would go to the piano any time I needed or wanted to express myself. Um, just to release my emotions. Um, and then I went away to um, a school in Pittsburgh, a Jewish school for high school. And um, my parents bought me a piano, the family where we were staying, so I could continue. And I did continue with, um, with piano lessons. But in terms of the composition, that was more as a hobby, um, something that was fun for me, um, that I used as an outlet and as a release. And so during those years um, where there's a lot of, I guess, different types of emotions going on, I was a teenager, um, I was away from home, um, I composed a lot of songs those years, during my high school years. So I was also started taking piano at six. I did not become a professional pianist or composer. I'm thinking I also wanted to quit, but... My mom didn't have me sit down next to it. She did tell me, you're not quitting. You're going to keep up with this. And my own daughters have gone through the same thing. They were ready to quit, and I pushed them to keep on going. And I personally found that my piano playing, I did 12 years of lessons, was such a great way to, like, release sort of tension or stress when, you know, the high school stress and tension was, you know, getting to me. And I really felt like all those years of putting in that time and effort paid off that at, at the beginning um, you know, the piano playing itself was stressed, but then once I got good enough, I could then use that, that time and that um, work that I put into it as it was a real payback. It was a real, you know, example of La Funsara Agra, according to the struggles, the reward that, um, you know, that was sort of my natural high that I got, that I saw that some of my classmates were using, you know, artificial highs to, you know, blow off steam and uh, deal with their stress, and I could go back to this. Um, so you did, I'm, I'm saying at a certain point, how, so how, how long did sort of the the explore your own route direction go before you went back to formal lessons and formal, you know, theory? Because you had to learn that stuff if you're going to be able to put uh, composition onto paper. Right, so I actually continued with formal lessons until the end of high school. 
Um, I never had composition lessons. I was all self-taught. Um, but because I was professionally trained and, you know, I was taught the theory and music theory, um, I knew that my compositions didn't follow very many of those uh, music, the, the grammar of music, so to speak. Um, because when I compose, I did not want to feel like I had to be boxed in to any um, rules um, or that, you know, to kind of stick to the theory of music. I kind of wanted to be free to express myself however I needed to express myself and not have to analyze it and think, okay, does this make sense musically, structurally, um, what's going on? So it actually it was because of that that I felt very insecure about my music, um, that my friends and family and the community, they loved it, they encouraged me to play whenever possible, but I never really believed that my music was good enough or that people or anyone who was, I guess, musically trained at all, that they would really appreciate um, my compositions because I knew that it didn't really follow very many um, of the um, of music, the laws of music theory, so to speak. Um, I'm not so much for following rules. I, I sort of feel like, you know, do things your own way and... It's kind of how I've lived most of my uh, career so far. What about your Jewish background? So you grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's probably not the biggest Jewish community. Today you are a Lubavitch Hasid. So how did, uh, did, were you always observant? Was that a journey? So growing up, um, my parents are South African. Um, we grew up traditional where we would have the traditional Friday night Kiddush. Um, when we would go to show, we would drive, park, you know, around the corner and then walk to show. Um, that was, that's how we grew up until I was probably about 10 or 11. Um, my older sister went away to Chabad camp and she came back. She wanted to be more religious and that's how the process started where I remember going out to Burger King and we would come home and we would eat it on the steps outside our house because we didn't want to bring it into our kosher house. Um, uh, and then that's how, you know, it slowly, we slowly became more religious um, at first the kids and then my parents. Um, and then I went away to the yeshiva in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, the Chabad yeshiva, and then seminary. And, uh, and the rest is history. Here I am. And did... I'm not sure, like, you know, what your, I guess in a way, is, is being a musician kind of like being an entrepreneur? Can you sort of set your own schedule, your own recording, your own performances? Has there been any competitions that you've been in that created some sort of tension with your observance? Have there been any tensions um, between being an observant Jew and a pianist and composer? Um. I, you know, I, I actually, I keep my, my music as a hobby, um, and I do this because once it turns into a career, I feel like that would put a lot of pressure on me, um, pressure to compose certain types of pieces, to compose with certain time refrains, um, and, um, and I don't think I would be able to compose like that. So in terms of that, I try to stay away from 
um, different um, different projects, I guess, that would cause that type of anxiety, mm-hmm. um, unless someone's asking me to do something, and then I would have my own time um, and set my own schedule for it. Um, I do perform. I um, I consider myself definitely more of a composer than a pianist. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, performing does cause a little bit of anxiety for me, but, um, you know, at the end of the performance, how much um, people, you know, are touched by my music, um, it makes it all worth it. Um, in terms of awards, um, I've submitted my, my this new CD to, um, to different awards. It actually won second place in the Global Music Awards. Um, so I won a silver medal, an outstanding achievement. Yeah, so it's um, it's nice. It's nice when when I can do it at my own pace um, and still see positive results. That's awesome. Um, in terms of restrictions and religious restrictions, I think I'm more lucky because there's not as many restrictions um, for me as a uh, piano player, composer. Um, there's no issues with Shomani Gia, sorry, Shomani Gia, Koisha. Um, there's no voice, I'm not singing. So um, there's much less restrictions in terms of that. So fine, so no tensions seem to be there. What about how does your music interface with your relationship to Hashem? Meaning, I, I once heard in the name of Rev Cook, I, I can't say that I actually found this written down, so... Um, I'm just going to put that disclosure out there, but that Hashem left the world unfinished so that we could create things. We could create art and music and things like that, and so we could partner with Hashem in the act of creation. So um, have you ever thought about how creating music um, interfaces with your relationship to God, to spirituality? Is is it a spiritual act for you, or is it just sort of you know more of a hobby that you enjoy, but you don't view it through that lens? Um, it definitely turned um, into more of a spiritual act because um, because I was saying before how I was insecure about the talent that I had and the music that I composed. Um, this kind of inhibited me for a long time in actually sharing my music um, and sharing it with uh, sharing it in a global way, I guess. Um, and at a certain point, I I ran into a quote. Um, by Leo Biscaglia that said, the talent that God gives you is his gift to you, and what you do with it is your gift back to him. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, um, you know, I had fallen under society's, um, uh, what society dictates that, you know, unless you're perfect and produce perfect results and look perfect and act perfect, uh, then your work is not respected or valued or appreciated, and and in reality, that's not true, that people don't need perfection. People are attracted to sincere, sincerity um, and genuineness. And I realize that, you know, as it says, that words from the heart enter the heart, and my music comes from the heart, and that's what people are attracted to. Um, so that kind of changed my perspective and changed my focus, and I realized that Hashem gave me this talent, and in a way, by saying it's not good enough, um, and it's not good enough to share that, you know, in a way that's, that's saying that, that the talent that, that Hashem gave me is not good enough and I'm not appreciative. Um, so once I discovered this and I 
realized, um, I was very grateful to Hashem, and I realized that we have, we all have unique talents um, and abilities that Hashem gave us specifically to use, and He wants us to use them. Um, and so, you know, even now, it, it's, it's always scary for me to release a new song or to release an album um, because it's sharing the most vulnerable side of me. Um, and I just, you know, have to remember that Hashem wants me to do this. Um, it's meant to be shared. Um, and uh, so I guess so that's where, you know, that's what, what encourages me now to, to share it. Yeah, like I, I, as a creator myself of uh, video content and written content, when you put it out there, you know, you took something from inside and then you put it out for the world and, you know, in particular, I mean, I'm not sure if music um, has to face the social media um, vitriol, but certainly the stuff that I put out there, you know, you have all these great ideas and things you want to do and you think you did it as best as you could and then someone like picks up on some detail. Why'd you do it like that? What were you thinking when you did it like that? And so um, I know the feeling, but it's great to, to push through that anyway. As you're talking about sort of um, the music or the talent is God's gift to you and then using it as your gift back to, to God, I'm going to give you another question that came to mind and I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on this. Music is, it seems to be a spiritual language in terms of the Torah, you know, in terms of the Levium, in terms of, you know, Shira and Tehillim and all that sort of stuff, you know, uh, David HaMelech. Um, have you ever thought about, you know, why music is used in the Torah as a, a language for God or a spiritual language? Ever give that any thought? I think that... Um now it says that music's the pen of the soul. I think that music is not, um, music itself, or nigan, is not bounded or uh, restricted by, by words. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, from, from my experience, from being a composer and also being very sensitive to other people's music, is I feel that it really does come straight from the soul. Um, I happen to be extremely sensitive to um, to music, whether you know there's lyrics or whether it's just instrumental, and I can sense. You know, sometimes I can absolutely love a song and really connect to it, and sometimes I can love a song, and something about it makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, and um, and I think that, you know, the ones that are written with sincerity and written from the heart um, and written from a, a pure place, um, that it really touches other person's soul and other person's neshama. Mm-hmm. So it's a, la- it's a language from, of you know, neshama from one to heart to the other. other. Very nice. We're, we're going to... Um, Close out in uh, in a couple minutes with uh, one of the songs from your album, um, Life Sometimes, and it's called Falling Up. But before we close out, to give people a sample of that, could you share with us, has there been, have you ha- had any interactions with any younger f- uh, from girls who have told you that listening to you or meeting you has impacted them to pursue a musical career or music as a hobby? Because there's not that many you know, from or Hasidic women in this field, to my knowledge, composers? Um, 
I get messages all the time from people um, just um, saying that, you know, what I do is an inspiration, asking for support, guidance into how they can actually go about to use their talents. Um, I think most people that I've found are scared to, you know, it's very scary, like we spoke about before, to kind of share a part of that, a part of yourself to to other people to share it with the public. You don't know how it's going to be received. You don't know if people are going to like it. Um, and I do my best to encourage them to do it um, and to share it. And the most important thing is to really, really surround yourself with positive people and people who believe in you and what you have to offer um, because that's really what's going to get you through it. It is scary. There are people that, you know, are very critical um, no matter how good your stuff is um, and it's just really important to stay away from that um, and all sorts of criticism even from yourself um, and to have a really good support uh, support and, and network of people who are going to encourage you and say you can do this um, even if, if sometimes you know, it takes a little bit of development um, and developing the talent um, but really everyone should be encouraged to use whatever talents they have. This is what we are meant to do. And as you said, with creating, um, that, you know, we by nature, and especially women, are, are creators. And this doesn't necessarily, you know, mean having kids and um, bringing in a shaman to this world, but creating could be from anything, creating music, art, poetry, um, films, um, uh, I guess design, um, really anything, and that's that's what would make us feel um, feel like we're we're actually giving to the world, to society, um, and to really use our talents for that. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and like I said before, we're going to close uh, our episode out today with a sample of uh, your music that is up on the Grammy ballot right now. We wish you a lot of Hatzlacha. And once again, this song is called Falling Up from the Sarah Dukes album Life Sometimes. And uh, you can catch us same time, same place next week. <laughs> 